Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today brings another day of chaos in California and the EEOC's lawsuits against Activision Blizzard. If you haven't been following this story, we do have a playlist for you to check out. Everybody versus Activision Blizzard, a legal view. But suffice it to say, California and the federal government through the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission have sued Activision Blizzard for, among other things, sexual harassment. And on the California side, a finding of paid disparities, of hiring, firing, promotion, actual employment-related discrimination on the part of the game publisher. Now, in respect to the EEOC, they filed a lawsuit in late September against Activision Blizzard and settled that lawsuit through what we call in the law a consent decree on the same day. When that consent decree was filed for the court's approval, a lot of folks had a lot of thoughts on it, including us here in virtual legality. But suffice it to say that a lot of folks thought that it was a little bit underperforming for what they would have liked to see for punishment of Activision Blizzard. In fact, the EEOC got about $18 million in funds from Activision to pay for affected employees, employees affected by direct sexual harassment, pregnancy discrimination, or retaliation for either of those two things. And that $18 million is admittedly a drop in the bucket for Activision Blizzard's bottom line. So some folks were upset, including the state of California, who had filed its lawsuit before the EEOC did in July of this year. When they filed that lawsuit, they claimed that they found pay discrimination, hiring, promotion, firing discrimination against women. They also claimed that they found sexual harassment and retaliation for those things as well. So California is proceeding with its lawsuit when the EEOC files its settlement and California takes umbrage, going so far, as we discussed yesterday, to actually attempt to intervene in the case between the EEOC and Activision Blizzard to tell the court that this consent decree was not satisfactory. Upon their doing so, the EEOC filed an opposition to that intervention that said, hey, look, we're allowed to do these things. We're the federal government. We can make the settlement on our own determination. That's how the statute works. Oh, and by the way, the bombshell from yesterday was that two people from the EEOC went from the EEOC to the state of California, more particularly the Department of Fair Employment and Housing that is bringing the suit against Activision Blizzard. And if you are familiar with conflict of interest rules in general, you have to screen people that come from a former employer into your firm, including in a government capacity, and say, you can't work on things you worked on before, that we're trying to avoid the appearance of impropriety, the dissemination of confidential information, trade secrets, and know-how from one party to another so that you can, as a lawyer, be allowed to change firms without worrying about screwing up client confidences. So that was a bit of a bombshell because the EEOC said, not only did you fail to screen these people coming in, but also... Because of that failure, nobody at the Department of Fair Employment and Housing should be allowed to bring this action against us. And that led to a number of questions and a number of questions that we had even yesterday about how this all happened. Fortunately, we have a couple of filings over the weekend and some filings in the last 24 hours and about an hour before this video that have continued to escalate some of the conflicts and give us a little bit better understanding of what's happening here. So as part of the documents that the EEOC filed in its opposition brief, they filed a set of emails. And we'll see, actually, as part of California's complaint in escalating this fight today and yesterday, that they have a problem with the number and type of emails that 
the EEOC is actually filing with the court, feeling that they're breaching confidentiality. You see a confidentiality notice here or attorney client privilege, which is a complicated topic when you're talking about two separate entities represented by their own counsel that are working together in some capacity. But as of September 29th, just a couple of days after the EEOC filed their consent decree, you can see Jeanette Whipper, who's the lead counsel for the Department of Fair Employment and Housing, the head lawyer at California for purposes of this story, saying, counsel, it's never a good idea when you don't refer to their name. It's never going to be good for one side or the other there. The DFEH reviewed your proposed consent decree. It is not fair, adequate, or reasonable, nor consistent with the public interest. The DFEH intends to intervene to object to the proposed decree unless it is withdrawn. We request that you notify your client. No other kindness is there. We do not like it. It's not right. We're going to object. You tell your people at the EEOC. And you say, okay, game on as of two days after they filed that consent decree. Then you start to see them try to figure out how they're going to have these meetings, what you're going to tell people about these meetings. We're actually going to read this one in reverse because we can talk about the timeline here as to what happened. So here we have an email, Dear Counsel, from the DFEH. The DFEH requests a meet and confer on October 1st, 2021. This is how you or I might ask for a Zoom call. On the DFEH's motion to intervene in the matter of EEOC versus Activision Blizzard, please provide your earliest availability. They're trying to set up a meeting. Defendants are available to meet and confer. Here's Activision talking. Whenever you see an email from Paul Hastings, that's their outside counsel covering Activision in this particular complaint. It says, to allow for a more productive meet and confer session, please send us the authorities and basis for your planned motion. You will recall, we did this for you in connection with defendants' plan demurrer. So here Activision is saying, look, there's a certain way we can go about doing this. There's a certain element of art of war that we can have so that everybody isn't bloodied at the end. We sent you the reasons why we were going to file a demurrer document to the court a little bit early so that you could start preparing for it. We would ask you to do the same. They say we ask for 48 hours to consider the material, something we also allowed the DFEH in connection with our motion. Assuming you were able to send us the authorities today, we, we can meet on October 4th. All right. Well, the DFEH doesn't take terribly kindly to that. It says, well, since defendants aren't prepared to meet and confer until October 4th, please submit a request to the court for a fairness hearing and ask the court to delay entry of the decree because defendants, Activision, knows that the department requests to meet and confer on intervention as an objector to protect stronger FEHA claims and remedies. The FEHA being the law in California that the state of California is suing on, which they are arguing now throughout a number of these documents, is stronger than Title VII and the federal remedies that are afforded to the EEOC. And if you've listened to some of my videos about the caps and impositions of settlements on the EEOC, you might well agree with that. It says, good faith requires both steps as a minimum, and we request that you notify us when this has been done or if you reject this proposal. Rejection of this proposal suggests an impasse on meet and confer efforts. So here you've got that kind of mobster mentality. There's nothing wrong with this, by the way, from the lawyers, but you got that putting pressure on people. Well, look, okay, if you want 48 hours and we can't talk about this for a little while, you need to go ask the court to have a fairness hearing and to delay any decision on this consent decree because not doing that is bad faith. Good faith requires both of those things. And if you reject this proposal, if you don't do those, well, that suggests an impasse on any ability for us to have a phone call about these things. You're not a good faith actor. Now, there's no indication that Activision's done that. It certainly hasn't been filed. They didn't request a fairness hearing on any of this. 
And yet we will see that there was a meet and confer conference. So it's a little bit of grandstanding, a little bit of bluster. It's not unusual. Defendants should further request that the proposed decree will not seek relief for California workers or seek waivers of any California claims, including but not limited to the FEHA. Now, this is one of California's big problems with the proposed consent decree is that the EEOC says you're going to get this money if you're an affected claimant, you've had sexual harassment imposed on you, pregnancy discrimination, retaliation, whatever it might be, but you're also going to have to sign a release form. You're going to have to waive some of your other rights. And they didn't provide what that release form looks like. In fact, in their response to California opposing their attempt to intervene in this, they told the court, hey, we're not going to allow Activision to have things like no hire clauses or arbitration provisions. But the way they were writing those paragraphs, it was implied that these folks would be waiving other sexual harassment claims, that that's what the EEOC was focused on because that's what they thought they were work sharing with the California department. More on that in just a second, but that they would be waiving all those rights. And in fact, the EEOC goes further in that document as we discussed yesterday and says, if you can't waive other rights, there's no way to actually have these settlements. That when Activision is spending this money, it is to make sure they can't get sued on these things that we say they can't get sued on. We have to be able to do those types of waivers. And the state of California clearly isn't happy with that, going so far as to then quote the EEOC settlement guidance manual to Activision. Please see that guidance manual. Also, please see these other federal law sites requiring the district court to assess whether the agreement is fundamentally fair or just because government participation in negotiating a decree does not insulate it from court review or lower the standard of review. So you already have this kind of prickliness. And in fact, if we look at the dates here, if you recall from yesterday's video, and I do recommend checking yesterday's video out in particular, if you aren't up to speed on some of this stuff, I apologize, but we've got a lot to get through. You see Friday, October 1st coming from someone at the DFEH. This is within those dates where the EEOC has accused department attorneys that previously worked for them at the commission of sending them materials as to how they are planning to stop the consent decree. So this email strikes me, and this is speculative because they've got redactions here, which are justified, that this is the kind of materials that the EEOC is saying are coming from the folks that used to work for them. And you can certainly understand if you're the EEOC and you think you're righteous, you think you're right in all this, and the consent decree is what makes sense to you under the statute. If these folks left and then are starting to send emails to you like this, even though they had been working on your project to get money for these affected folks that were hurt by Activision Blizzard, then you're starting to get upset as the EEOC. These folks left and they're now trying to block your efforts and trying to make you look bad at the same time. They're submitting Kotaku articles to the court saying $18 million is nothing. They're submitting all of this kind of information to the court, complaining about an EEOC that at least ostensibly looks like they were trying to get done what they usually get done and are now getting attacked from multiple sides at this point in time. So the senior trial attorney for the EEOC has a similar email, says, hey, we'll meet and confer, but we're not available till October 5th. We'd also like to better understand what your objections are to the substance of the decree before embarking on a process that could seriously delay relief for harmed individuals. We need to understand the basis on which you believe the decree will affect you as an agency. So here we have the other way to kind of strategize as a lawyer. You're putting this out there and saying, well, you know, 
are you interested in civil rights and protection or not? Because this is going to delay money going from Activision to folks that were harmed. So we better make darn sure that you're doing the right thing. And how are you specifically going to be affected as a department? Well, the department itself has a fairly long answer to that. First, they say, hey, we are allowed to intervene as a matter of right. We saw this objected to in the actual court filings by the EEOC yesterday. And then here's a real gem of a line. They tell the EEOC to read their own settlement guidance. This is the same line they used when they were having a communication with Activision, but it makes at least some amount of sense there because Activision Blizzard presumably isn't reading the EEOC settlement guidelines every day. But when you send it to a trial attorney for the EEOC, it takes on the patina of telling them to do their job, right? Why don't you read your own materials on this kind of thing? Clearly, the EEOC didn't react well to that. We're kind of seeing a little bit of this in reverse because of the way these were filed. But when we looked at the document yesterday that the EEOC filed with the court, they said, our own counsel we will keep on what our manual says, your honor. And you can now understand why when you see some of this in black and white in these emails. It says, the DFEH's objection to the proposed decree stems from its deviation from EEOC's settlement guidelines. The proposed decree will provide nominal relief for a nationwide class since, in California alone, 2,600 employees participated in a walkout a few days after the department filed suit on July 20th, 2021. You'll also want to keep that date in mind, although I will definitely reference it again when it becomes important. This was widely reported by the time the proposed decree was lodged on September 27th, 2021. The proposed decree would similarly offer nominal relief to the nationwide class outside of California if their numbers are added to California employees who participated in the protected activity of the mass walkout against defendants' employment practices. California workers who are offered nominal relief will not be harmed by the department's request for a fairness hearing, which could alleviate the pressure imposed on harmed individuals by the proposed decree to waive stronger FEHA, California rights, and uncapped damages. Now, it might not jump off the page to you, but there's about 40 errors here. And there's also an imposition on the EEOC that their stuff is weak. They're deliberately trying to provide only nominal redress to individuals. And if you are the EEOC, and let's assume you're not co-opted or corrupted. I know some people come into the comments and say the EEOC is bought. And let's presume that's not the case. The EEOC is just doing what it does under its statute. Then you're looking at this paragraph and going, what the heck are you talking about? We have a consent decree that's about people getting sexually harassed, people facing pregnancy discrimination, and people having retaliation by Activision Blizzard for those two things, for bringing complaints about those issues at the company. That's the affected class of individuals. Why are you bringing up 2,000 people that walked out? What does that have to do with anything? Was anybody fired out of that? Was there retaliation for those kinds of protected activities? Certainly nothing has appeared to me in any journalistic outlet suggesting that that has happened. Activision Blizzard would frankly be absolutely stupid to take action on those parts. And then you're going to add up the other people outside of California to come up with a number that says, oh, I get to divide 18 million by 10,000 people is completely disingenuous. We're talking about the affected class. The EEOC says it's hundreds in their filing. California says it's tens of thousands because they're not actually reading the document or at bare minimum, they're trying to present something that is basically false. And then you get to the end and says, well, 
you shouldn't have to worry about changing your consent decree because none of this money is going to matter to anybody and you don't want them to waive what are the stronger rights under California law. That's also why you get some of those responses that we looked at yesterday that says we will not agree that Title VII is weaker than California law. Continuing, you get the reference that we saw also discussed yesterday with respect to the perverse incentive of settlement funds that revert back to the defendants. It says here the notice to the harmed individuals is lacking or inadequate. The automatic denial of relief to harmed individuals who aren't able to return paperwork is a requirement of the proposed decree that would tend to restrict claim eligibility. And the EEOC cannot argue an exemption from such common sense safeguards against reversions of settlement funds to defendants despite the fact that they aren't subject to normal class fairness certifications under Rule 23. Now, the EEOC has already responded to that, as we saw, saying, well, look, we have final authority over whether this is donated or whether or not it goes back into their diversity fund. So this isn't reversionary in the same way that you're describing it in this paragraph. But we can expect now, seeing an email like this, is this is the argument that the DFEH is likely to bring. And then we also see a point of clarification from them in reverse. Remember, if you will, when the EEOC filed their document, they said, look, we told them, we sent an email to them that we were going to have this charging document. We'd finished our investigation. We're going into conciliation and inviting them to join us. And there's a big fight here between the department and the EEOC about whether the department actually was allowed to come. And what you can get between the lines of this next paragraph is why the department said no and why the EOC doesn't really think that's a legitimate excuse. It says, the DFEH is not to blame for the fact that defendants chose not to waive the confidentiality of conciliation under Title VII, as is their known right at any time, to enable all parties to work on a global resolution. So, taking a step back, the EOC files its final investigative findings with Activision, says we are going to have to conciliate, or we might have to bring a lawsuit. They say, okay, we will enter into conciliation with you. The statute that governs conciliation says documents don't get out of that. We want employers to come to this, to talk to us about the issues, to hopefully get them fixed. You don't have to waive your confidentiality rights in order to participate in that process. Confidentiality rights that are granted by statute. It would appear, even though we don't have this email, that the Department of Fair Employment and Housing said, we are not going to participate with Activision and the EEOC unless Activision waives its confidentiality. We want to be able to promote and otherwise say that this is happening, talk about it, whatever it is that the Department of Fair Employment and Housing wants to do. Activision Blizzard would appear to have said, no, we're not going to waive our confidentiality rights. Let's go and into a closed room, talk about all this, and you can present your case and you can confer with the EOC. You can do these various things. The department refused, and this comes out in this email and elsewhere that we're going to see in these documents is effectively them not being invited, which the EOC says, well, you're not allowed to file this motion. Now, you could have come at any time. You have a problem with confidentiality. And by the way, we didn't even wind up settling this in conciliation. So it all went public. We had the lawsuit. We had the consent decree filed publicly. There's nothing that isn't public about this process. So the department just kind of screwed up, it would appear. But that's all reading between the lines because this paragraph otherwise sits out there doing nothing. Finishing off here, alternatively, the defects in the proposed decree can be corrected by withdrawing it and refiling one that is modified to meet the fairness standard. Take it out and do better and then refile it. And you can certainly understand if you're sitting at the EEOC, how this looks like an affront. And then by the time that you get to October 4th, just a few days later, you can see how upset they are by those emails that are apparently coming from their former employees, resulting in a set of emails and documents 
from the EEOC itself, Office of Legal Counsel, saying, attached is a letter advising you of the post-federal employment conflict of interest statute. We learned of your involvement in the case and want to ensure you that you are aware of the relevant restrictions regarding your post-EEOC employment. You see this copied twice because there's those two individuals. You see the letter here. Now, interestingly, separate from what we saw yesterday, which was a discussion of California ethics rules, this is actually referring to a federal statute, which is slightly weaker, which is probably why the EEOC didn't decide to use it in their court filing, but that basically says any person who after termination of his or her service of employment with the United States knowingly makes with the intent to influence any communication to or appearance before any officer or employee of any department agency court or court martial of the United States or the District of Columbia on behalf of any other person in connection with a particular matter in which they had a direct and substantial interest and participated personally is going to be a problem. You aren't allowed to do that. It says, if you do that, you are potentially going to be subject to punishment as provided in section 216 of this title. So they sent these letters to both of these attorneys. And it's worthwhile to note that there does appear to be a story there. It's unusual to have this exact same set of circumstances apply to two separate individuals. So I know a number of you came into the comments and suggested, well, maybe these people were unhappy with the way the EEOC process was going and defected to the DFEH deliberately for this purpose. And that might well be the case. I would caution against speculation on these kinds of things. But certainly if that is the case, if those dates line up, if you can have evidence of that fact, I think potentially that presents an even more problematic conflict of interest kind of scenario, because in that scenario, that's not one where people just forgot. People didn't screen, they're not doing their jobs at the DFEH, but it's ultimately innocuous. You're not actually trying to have a conflict of interest. You're not trying to betray confidentiality or trust or whatever else might apply in the circumstance. In the scenario where they are deliberately leaving to go and do this specifically, that's a far, far, far more significant ethical lapse at bare minimum for the two individuals, but potentially also for the department. Now, we also have here in this set of emails, the department's ostensible answer to what the EEOC has bought before the court. It says, neither individual one nor individual two participated personally and substantially as an EEOC employee in the investigation of the charge in question, Activision Blizzard. Please provide any document or other evidence that supports your contrary position. So here, as of the same date, we have Janet Whipper, the head law lawyer, the head legal officer at the DFEH saying, no, they didn't. They didn't work for the EEOC on Activision Blizzard. Please produce any document or other evidence that supports your contrary position. And they might pursue that against the EEOC's complaints. Now, they've probably already admitted that this isn't in fact the case. By the time you roll around to the documents we were analyzing yesterday, they've actually gotten these people off the case and have brought in outside counsel to at least handle things ostensibly for now. And so it would appear that the EEOC was able to present its case properly to them. And at bare minimum, again, you seem to be evidencing a DFEH that doesn't go through the proper screening procedure. And this is standard. I said this yesterday, but this is not at all unusual. You move between firms, you talk with the head counsel at the new firm, you tell them everything that you did, a screening email goes out that says, don't talk to the new guy about X, Y, and Z, and it's usually a much, much longer list, and you don't talk to the new guy about X, Y, and Z. So this is a very unusual set of affairs because it's not a really technical issue that's just buried in some corner of a page of framework. This is one of the most fundamental conflict of interest kind of questions. 
Then we scroll down a little bit more, and we don't really need to discuss this, but this is apparently an individual by the name of Patrick Patterson, who, because of the issue of the conflict of interest, was brought in solely to have a phone call, which appears to be a single phone call with the EEOC in order to have somebody be able to talk to them at that meet and confer teleconference that they were setting up for, I believe it was October 6th. So we get a little bit more background about what we were talking about yesterday. I think that's important because you can see California escalating the issue. You can see how the EEOC is getting increasingly upset about all of this to the point where they put forth the document that they did to combat this intervention. And now we have California talking even further with more emails to discuss. So as of yesterday, you have a filing from the department here through their new counsel to object to what was filed by the EEOC as part of their objection to the intervention. And this isn't that significant, but it does raise a couple of issues with how they're reading documents, how they're using their facts that have really suggested to me that California is playing pretty fast and loose with these things. And to some extent, I don't blame the new counsel that much because they're brand new. But when you are filing documents with the court, you got to make sure they're darn correct. So let's take a look at what they said. It said, EEOC filed documents in the public record and submitted additional documents under seal, which are privileged and confidential. Specifically, paragraph 13 of the declaration of Rosa Viramontes quotes from emails that were labeled privileged and confidential and privileged and confidential and a bunch of other notes. EEOC concedes the privileged nature of the documents. It contemporaneously filed an application for leave to file documents under seal, which acknowledges that the filing contains evidence protected by attorney-client privilege, the attorney work product doctrine, and deliberative process privilege, which EEOC cannot publicly disclose or else risk damaging its institutional mandate. Now, it's important to understand in that paragraph, the EEOC is saying, we need to redact things, we need to file them under seal because we have privilege and we don't want to lose that or else we'll risk damaging how our institution functions. We don't want to share our own internal stuff, so we would ask that that would be redacted. After reviewing the filing on October 9th, that's when a bunch of those emails started to be exchanged, DFEH requested that the offending documents be removed from the public record. EEOC did not respond to the request by the time of this filing. Instead, the EEOC refiled the documents as part of its notice of errata. So this is where you start to see again, not that we haven't already through now a number of emails and court filings, the agencies are being very, very catty with each other. And so the EEOC gets this email that we're going to take a look at in just a second saying, hey, take this stuff down. And instead of taking it down, what they did was they filed an errata that corrected the signature page. The signature page was actually like a photocopy or a photo uh, on your phone, which you can sometimes get away with, but you correct it after the fact. They filed the errata and said, oh, we're just correcting this completely unredacted. Same paragraphs that they had expressed a problem with in their emails that we'll take a look at. And you get to see that kind of passive aggression from the EEOC as part of this as well. Now, what is California so concerned about? Well, California is so concerned about the actual declarations of email contents that were made by Rosa Viramontes uh, at the EEOC. So importantly, and we're going to talk about the substance of these particular statements in just a second, it's worthwhile to note that even in this original document, the state of California is playing fast and loose with certain sentences. It says the EEOC concedes the privileged nature of the documents, presumably referring to paragraph 13 that they're concerned with. But if you actually go and you look at what 
the EEOC filed. It says, we request the court permit the EEOC to file redacted versions of the memorandum of points and authorities, the declaration of Taylor Markey in support of the opposition, supporting exhibits, and the declaration of Marla Stern Knowlton. And then you see them say the evidence the EEOC requires to support its opposition contains communications protected by privilege. Everything that you saw the state of California just quote, what you don't see is a blanket request by the EEOC or acknowledgement that anything else that they filed is subject to a need to file it under seal or to be redacted. So what you've got here is them saying, the state of California saying that the EEOC has already admitted that these things should have been redacted or filed under seal or removed or whatever. And the EEOC did no such thing. So we already start there, but let's talk about what actually happened here as reported on in this declaration. It says the EEOC and DFEH agreed to the following specific terms about their work sharing agreement. Again, if you weren't here yesterday, we talked about the fact that one of the things that popped out was at least according to the EEOC, at least from their perspective, the EEOC and the state of California through their DFEH agreed to separate the charges made against Activision Blizzard so as to not double up on efforts. And the way they separated this, according to the EEOC, was that the EEOC would handle harassment and the department in California would handle the equal pay promotion hiring employment concepts. And that's what you'll see regurgitated here by referencing the emails from the past couple of years. It says, pursuant to the work sharing agreement, which we'll take a look at, common equal employment opportunity authorities and common goals the DFEH and EEOC were working together on an investigation of potential violations by Activision Blizzard and its subsidiaries slash affiliates. The parties were to continue to coordinate during the investigation, and if reasonable cause determined, determinations were to be issued, both agencies were to coordinate conciliation and mediation efforts together. The EEOC was to investigate the harassment allegations and take the lead on the investigation of the harassment allegations. The department was to take the lead on the investigation of sex discrimination relating to pay, promotion and advancement opportunities, hiring and assignment, transfer, training and other opportunities, reassignment, demotion and termination allegations. Generally speaking, the employment discrimination piece rather than the harassment piece. Paragraph four says the department specifically agreed it is not conducting the investigation of the harassment allegations in this matter. And in reliance on that agreement, the EEOC narrowed the scope of its investigation to harassment and related retaliations. All of that is important. The EEOC essentially said, you can see the reference here to 12940 k that they were going to hand off the right to look at these kinds of unlawful employment practices specifically to the state of California so that there wouldn't be this doubling of efforts. The EEOC, on the other hand, was going to be limited only to the harassment piece. And that was okay because each side would be doing its own thing with respect to mediation or conciliation or lawsuits. But what it did mean was that the EEOC had a limited jurisdiction by its own agreement and was going to move forward with that limited jurisdiction and have a lawsuit and a settlement and a consent decree that would potentially be smaller than if they would have had and maintained all the rights to themselves. Now, what's important about this is that if you look at the actual work sharing agreement, which is made public, this is actually the 2019 version, but there are attestations in the court documents that say this was essentially just re-upped for 2020 and 2021, it establishes how charges move around, right? And one of the things it says is basically you can file it with either the EEOC or the FIPA, that's the Department of Fair Employment and Housing for purposes of this agreement. It means any state agency that would cover these kinds of topics. You can file a charge with either. The employee can go to the EEOC or to their state agency. And then we're going to talk about how those charges move around, how they're going to be handled. It says 
For charges originally received by the EEOC and or initially processed by the EEOC, the FIPA waives its right of exclusive jurisdiction and the EEOC will have initial processing rights over Title VII, ADA, Title VII slash ADA, disability charges, all concurrent Title VII slash EPA charges. We're going to come back to that in just a second. Charges against the FIPA, things filed by the EEOC commissioners directly, charges covered by immigration reform, federal laws, what you would expect, right? And the FIPA will initially process the following types of charges. Charges related to retaliation for filing a charge with the FIPA. Stuff that directly relates to you, you can, you can take that. Any charge where they're already party to an agreement that might relate to the charge. All charges that allege more than one basis of discrimination, where at least one basis is not covered by the laws administered by the EEOC, but is covered by the FIPA ordinance, which is the laws of the state that the FIPA is in, or where the EEOC is mandated by federal court decision or by internal administrative EEOC policy to dismiss the charge, but the FIPA can process the charge. Hey, do we have to step aside for federal reasons? Then you can take it on. Do you have a law that covers a little bit more than ours? Then you can take it on. But when we talk about California law, we have to note that the EEOC actually has jurisdiction of the discrimination that they handed off to the state of California. They have the Equal Pay Act, requires that men and women in the same workplace be given equal pay for equal work. They have Title VII, which makes it illegal to discriminate based on sex in pay and benefits. That's what Title VII slash EPA means up here. So as a general rule, the way this work sharing agreement appears to go is that the EEOC kind of takes everything in, figures out what's happening. And basically if it's covered by federal law, the EEOC can take it on unless they agree otherwise. It says, notwithstanding any other provision of the agreement, the FIPA or the EEOC may request to be granted the right to initially process any charge. Such variation shall not be inconsistent with the objectives of the parties in essence here. So what the EEOC appears to believe happened is that they said, okay, you guys can take that stuff on. We could take it on, but we don't want to do that. We want you to have something to do. And also it's, it's useful to have more eyes doing these kinds of things, but not to just be doing the same kinds of things. So you go check that out. And the department disagrees with how all these emails read, despite what we just read in the work sharing agreement itself. In fact, if we go further, as filed yesterday, we get a declaration of Jeanette Whipper, chief counsel of the California Department of Fair Employment and Housing, who says the following. First, she gives us some specific dates so that we can keep track of them. The department director, Kevin Kish, signed a director's complaint against Blizzard on October 12th, 2018. The U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission signed their own charge against Activision Blizzard on September 26th, 2018. So about a couple of weeks before the EEOC got in front. And that's important. You look at the work sharing agreement. There is a kind of first in time concept as well. Suffice it to say, the EEOC appears to have first mover position both through the terms of that work sharing agreement and by the fact that they were first. Although California, or more specifically, Jeanette Whipper doesn't want to leave it at that though it did not notify the department of the commissioner's charge pursuant to the federal rules. Nonetheless, after the department learned of the commissioner's charge, the department and EEOC proceeded with coordinated confidential investigation. So here they're accusing the EEOC of not telling the state of California that they had filed this charge as they were supposed to do under the work sharing agreement and the federal rules. But we got to working together anyway. It says in the coordinated investigations, the exchange of confidential information between the EEOC and department personnel were subject to the work sharing agreement. The department has actively investigated the claims in this manner and has never ceded investigative authority to the EEOC nor 
waived its right to pursue all available remedies against the Activision defendants that are available to the department under California law. In fact, as described below, the consent decree currently before the court was achieved while the Activision defendants refused to participate in the department's mandatory resolution processes, which Activision denies, while concurrently participating in the EEOC's conciliation process from which the department was excluded. Now here you just have an actual fight on facts. The department says they are excluded from that conciliation process. The EEOC says they were not. They were invited and told about it. And so you have a fight there that's actually pretty important because the department is using it as an, as an excuse for doing what it did with its own lawsuit. The department considers the communications between the department and EEOC to be privileged and confidential and has contemporaneously objected to the inclusion of such email communications in the EEOC's filings in this matter. The department does not consider communications with the Activision defendants to be privileged. They wouldn't be. Communications with an outside party are not privileged. Now, here we get into a little bit more of a fight. We're back now in a different document. I know they all look the same. This is the declaration of Rosa Viramontes who is the director of the Los Angeles branch of the EEOC. And she's going to talk here about the fact that the department didn't engage with them in this conciliation process. Pursuant to the interagency agreement on June 23rd, 2021, I provided the department with a copy of the EEOC's letter of determination and I informed the department that the EEOC and defendants were currently engaging in conciliation. I invited Ms. Whipper to coordinate conciliation efforts with us I was informed by the director of state, local, and tribal programs in Washington, D.C. that the department through its council would reach out to EEOC's council to coordinate next steps. DFEH did not respond to my June 23rd, 2021 letter or otherwise reach out to the EEOC to coordinate resolution efforts prior to filing its lawsuit. And this is highlighted in red because, as we will see, they are going to accuse the state of California, the Department of Fair Employment and Housing, is going to accuse the EEOC of lying here and actually lying in respect of this whole declaration, this selection of emails that didn't include other texts that they think would be important. But they're going to accuse them of lying. And I'm going to tell you, spoiler alert, that I think their argument is pretty poor based on the dates. So important to remember that the EEOC claims that they sent an email on June 23rd, 2021, telling the department about the EEOC's letter of determination, and then they say, didn't get back to us before the filing of their lawsuit, right? Okay, now let's continue with what Ms. Whipper said. DFEH considers the communications between DFEH and EEOC to be privileged and confidential and not those between Activision defendants to be privileged. We know that. DFEH's active and coordinated investigation is evidenced by the numerous emails sent by the department staff in the months leading up to and following the filing of the Superior Court complaint. For example, on June 11th, 2021, I sent an email. On June 15th, on July 30th, on between May 25th and June 23rd, 2021. And that date should jump out at you because that's what we just talked about. Note, however, how this list works. June 11th, sure. June 15th, July 30th. That's a pretty long gap right there between correspondences that you can actually say that you had. And it does incorporate, of course, that June 23rd date that Rosa Viramontes at the EEOC said was when they invited them to go through the conciliation process with them. In fact, the emails that are otherwise put forth in this kind of blanket paragraph end at June 23rd. And then they pick up again on July 27th, August 3rd, August 9th, and September 15th. 
So we'll be back to that in just a second, but I really do think it's a problem with the state of California's argument. The department's confidentiality requirements include compliance with the official information privilege, law enforcement investigative privileges, government deliberative process privileges, and attorney-client and work product privileges set forth in various statutes. I labeled all of these things. For example, I sent emails on May 22nd, 2020, June 1st, 2020, June 2nd, 2020, June 4th, 2020, and July 1st, 2020 related to this investigation with these notes. She included an exhibit here on that score showing that they were marked as privileged and confidential. Of course, whether or not that's effective by email, it's an open question that would be litigated before the courts. But it's also interesting to note that she selected emails from 2020 and not from 2021 where this fight is actually happening. This continues. I sent an email to the EEOC Los Angeles Regional Attorney Anna Park requesting that privileged communications be removed. And I put that forth as an exhibit in Exhibit B. So this is the the fundamental kind of complaint that the state of California has here. And it's this date concept that you put forth this information from these emails that were privileged, not in total, just with these kinds of quotes. And that's a problem for us. You re-uploaded them as errata when we complained about them. And you're lying. Now, how does she say you're lying? Well, in a couple of ways. First, she says, I am dismayed by your agency's decision to publicly disclose confidential and privileged communications between the EEOC and department and make misrepresentations to the court. Opening gambit, you are liars. Continuing, the declaration of Rosa Viramontes also incorrectly states that the department did not respond to my June 23rd, 2021 letter or otherwise reach out to the EEOC to coordinate resolution efforts prior to filing its lawsuit. The department sent several email communications to the EEOC, including on June 11th, June 15th, July 27th, 30th, 3rd, 9th, 13th, and 15th of September. Now, as we just talked about, I've highlighted them in different colors for your viewing pleasure. The actual letter is sent on June 23rd. The declaration here is saying you didn't respond to it when we invited you to participate in conciliation. So these ones that happened before it, they don't matter. And what's the first email that is actually referenced here as happening after they got that email? It's almost a month and a half later on July 27th, which corresponds with the week that they filed their own lawsuit, which happens on July 20th. So when she says, you didn't respond to us prior to filing your lawsuit, it's hard for me to look at an email like this and find a lie. You didn't respond, at least in your own admission here. Maybe there's other emails that we don't know about, but you didn't respond during this whole big window when, by all appearances, it looks like when they gave you that letter, you decided you weren't going to participate in their conciliation. You weren't happy, presumably, with whatever the EEOC found and was moving towards. You went dark, which is not unusual for lawyers and law firms and government agencies. You put together your own lawsuit. You filed it. And from the EEOC's perspective, they think, potentially they're doing the right thing. And they say, well, they're not responding to us. We're going to go forward with this process. And then in the middle of that conciliation process, the state of California comes out of nowhere with a lawsuit that apparently they didn't tell the EEOC about in advance. So you've got this situation where two agencies, both of which, if we're being generous, want to do the right thing, are at each other's throats because they don't feel like the other side is doing the right thing. And from the state of California's perspective, they're putting forth a lot of arguments that I think are pretty poor. They finish off this particular email that says, the department requests the EEOC immediately withdraw the public filings referencing those confidential and privileged communications, as well as the public filings containing misrepresentations to the court, and please confirm your position immediately, which is lawyer speak again for get your butt in gear. 
Now, Janet Whipper wasn't the only one that filed a document in connection with all of this. And it's worth noting that Janet Whipper, if the EEOC had its way, wouldn't be allowed to file these things at all. They say such representation is prohibited by the California Rules of Professional Conduct and is imputed to all department attorneys. So you have to bar all the department attorneys court. And the court might not do that. The court might bar only the two affected individuals, might not bar anyone. But the EEOC presents a strong case, at least as far as we can tell without the black bars, that the court should be looking at this carefully. And if it does decide in favor of the EEOC on this question, Janet Whipper wouldn't be allowed to file any of this stuff. Now, finally, we have a document from Christian Schreiber, who is an attorney acting on behalf of the Department of Fair Employment and Housing through their new capacity as outside counsel. And he makes a declaration that basically says, yep, please take that stuff out. I emailed something the next day on October 10th to actually ask for this to be removed. And I say, though the filing includes a motion to seal, your papers nevertheless disclose information and communications that are expressly privileged and confidential and propose to provide additional such communications to the court. Section 4A of the work sharing agreement provides in relevant part that the agency accepting information agrees to comply with any confidentiality requirements imposed on the agency providing the information. Despite this, Ms. Viramonte's declaration quotes or references confidential communications protected under evidence code section 1040, the work sharing agreement, attorney-client privilege, and the attorney work product doctrine throughout. Now, skipping, setting aside the fact that the state of California is trying to make its case that the sharing of information as between counsel is a violation of privilege and doing it by submitting emails between counsel. Set that aside for just a second because I think it's an interesting avenue, but you could argue that now we're adverse and it's not the same that when we were sharing work, et cetera, et cetera. There's a misreading here, and I think it's important to note. This might well be privileged information. By the time that we're talking about this in court, you're going to have to have a real detailed knowledge of what the work sharing actual capacity of these parties was, because it's confusing. You've got two entities represented by their own counsel working together, emailing things about dates and whatnot, and whether or not that's attorney-client privilege is going to be a question of exactly how the court sees them whether or not they're essentially a single firm in a common interest for this purpose, whether there's something else, whether it's on a case-by-case basis. I can't sit here on the outside and tell you that what the EEOC presented to the court is privileged, shouldn't have been shared. That is a possibility that the EEOC shouldn't have included that information. What I can tell you is that Section 4A of the Work Sharing Agreement, as quoted here by the new outside counsel, does not appear to apply. If you really carefully read that, the agency accepting information, which would be the EEOC, agrees to comply with any confidentiality requirements imposed on the agency, not the agency receiving the information, but on the agency providing the information. If you, the Department of Fair Employment and Housing, have some kind of third-party information, let's say you had an interview with someone and agreed to keep that confidential, then if you share it in a work-sharing agreement with the EEOC, what this term says is that the EEOC has agreed to abide by that confidentiality agreement you entered into with that third party as if they had entered into it themselves. This is very standard whenever you're dealing in a confidentiality capacity where you say, well, look, I might have my own obligations when we enter into an agreement with each other. You agree that if I share something with you that's allowed under that, you will still take it as if you were me and be obligated under those same restrictions. The agency accepting information, the EEOC, agrees to comply with requirements imposed on the agency providing the information, on, on things imposed on the state of California. It doesn't reference confidentiality that the state just wants to invoke. It's not imposed upon it. It wants to use it as a benefit. This preference 
doesn't actually say anything like what the lawyer would appear to say. Now, I can't tell you that I've experienced litigating a work-sharing agreement between various federal and state bodies under Title VII and EEO laws. So it's possible there's case law out there. It's possible there's precedent out there that reads it completely differently than the English would suggest. But just reading it, as I have done with looking at confidentiality agreements for a long, long time, this doesn't say what the lawyer purports it to say. And he, again, doubles down with what we saw from Ms. Whipper in accusing the EEOC of lying to the court. Finally, the department objects to the EEOC's mischaracterization of the record through its omission of obviously relevant communications. EEOC's omissions amount to a breach of its duty of candor to the court, which we intend to make clear when the merits of these issues are taken up. Breach of its duty of candor to the court means you are lying. And that's a big deal. When you say, hey, you're lying to the court, that's the kind of thing that could potentially get sanctions. It won't. It's a federal agency. But it's a big deal to complain about. And you see this escalation and escalation and escalation. And I agree with the folks that come into my comments and say, well, aren't the Activision Blizzard employees, if they're affected by what the EEOC has accused, if they're affected by what the state of California has accused, aren't they the ones getting left by the wayside? And the answer is yes. You've got a kind of battle of the titans here, and the affected employees are unfortunately the little citizenry of the city as they knock down buildings, hitting each other. So I agree with you that this is a problem. You don't want to see this, especially if there's an injustice that needs to be weeded out. But this is unfortunately what's happening because the EEOC wants to protect their interests. The state of California clearly wanted to make a bigger deal out of this, wanted to have press, didn't want to go into conciliation meetings that had confidentiality requirements and wanted to make an even bigger deal out of the fact that they were going to intervene with respect to this consent decree and wanted to do it on an ex parte basis without the EEOC even getting to say anything. The EEOC was ready and jumped in and said, no, no, no. And the court finally yesterday said, all right, enough of this. A motion to intervene may be filed as a regularly noticed motion. The EEOC and department are ordered to meet and confer concerning a briefing schedule no shorter than the schedule provided in the local rules. We're going to do this the normal way, and you can all stop fighting because you clearly have stuff to work out. The judge has ordered, and that's it. They're going to have to go through a normal process for what this is going to look like, and it wouldn't surprise me if at the end of the day the EEOC ultimately agrees to a fairness hearing as much as they might grit their teeth at it. Part of that is also because there are now political actors acting in capacity of this question. That's the last thing I'm going to leave you with. As you saw in the thumbnail, Union joins the fight today, not an hour before I actually started recording this video. The Communications Workers of America, which this is important, they claim represents a number of Activision current and former employees requests that the court grant and schedule a fairness hearing with respect to the proposed consent decree. And if you aren't familiar with the concept, basically when you've got a settlement that's going to affect a class of people, the court can have requested, can step in and say, I'm going to evaluate this and make sure that I think it's fair. And this is a purely equitable kind of judgment. It's not an editorial one. The judgment can't be, oh, I don't like 18 million, but it's going to be 22. That's not how it works. It's up or down. And then you have to go back to the drawing board if it's down but that you can ask the court to actually evaluate the fairness of a document like this. And here, very unusually, at least in my experience, if you've got labor lawyers that are watching this, maybe they can inform a little bit better, leave a comment to the video. A union in a non-unionized company is claiming to represent employees and is bringing an actual official court document requesting a fairness hearing in at least ostensibly an action in which they are not a party or otherwise involved. 
says the Communications Workers of America believes that there are a number of serious deficiencies in the proposed consent decree, and the union would like those deficiencies addressed at a fairness hearing. Generally, a union has standing to raise such issues, and then they cite a case in which there's a class certification in which a union represents some of the people, but not all of the people. Here, it's completely unclear whether the union represents these people on its face. Now, they've just represented the court that they do, so that'll be an interesting question. But as far as we know, the Communication Workers of America don't have an official capacity with respect to Activision Blizzard employees. So that will be an interesting question. And unfortunately, it's one in which a, a high-priced, highfalutin labor lawyer might be better capable of answering than myself. So if you got a podcast or YouTube video channel you like with that particular expertise, you might want to check that out. But certainly looking at it from my perspective, that seems enormously unusual. Now, to be fair to the Communications Workers of America, who, if you recall, helped certain employees at Blizzard Activision actually file a charge with the National Labor Relations Board, which, despite what you might see in some outlets, is not a lawsuit. Please check earlier in the playlist. They do have a relationship with some of these folks, but not in an officially cognizable capacity. I wouldn't think. That said, just like any citizen in the country, they can go complain about things. And on October 6th, during everything else that we were discussing, they sent a letter to the EEOC complaining about their decree. They said this office represents the Communications Workers of America, which is in contact with a large number of employees of defendants, Activision Blizzard. Note the difference in that sentence, by the way. As of October 6, 2021, they're saying something that makes a lot more sense to me. This legal office, this law firm, represents the CWA, and the CWA is in contact with a bunch of employees from Activision Blizzard. That all makes sense. The fact that the CWA is now claiming to represent employees at Activision Blizzard, including former employees, that's an interesting thing. And of course, that goes into the whole discussion of unionization and what exactly is happening within the four walls of Activision headquarters. Continuing with their letter, they say the employees in CWA recently learned of the proposed consent decree. We have grave concerns over the scope and extent of that consent decree, and they would like some issues answered. Now, we're not going to go over all these. This will, of course, be linked in the description of the video, but they present 31 flavors of complaint, indeed 31 paragraphs of complaint. But generally speaking, you put your big ones up at the top and they have complaints. Why were the employees not consulted prior to the agreement of the proposed consent decree? These EEOC standards regarding consent decree decrees require communication with employees who are affected by a consent decree before entering into any proposed consent decree. It's possible they used the phrase consent decree too much in that sentence. I don't know. I'll need your verdict in the comments. But what's interesting about this is, again, you've got this outside party here, not a party even to the proceeding itself, intervening with the court. And much like those emails from the state of California telling the EEOC how its standards are to be interpreted, when those standards are, are guidelines, they're, they're not really the rules that these various parties would seem to put forth. It says, although the commission determines appropriate relief in suits it files, claimants in commission cases should be consulted regarding relief the commission is considering accepting and should be notified prior to execution of a final agreement of the relief they will receive in the settlement. It's important from a legal perspective to note the shoulds there. It's not will, it's not required. You should do these things in most circumstances. It also notes that exceptions to the first requirement can be made in class matters involving large number of claimants. Remember, the EEOC believes this affects hundreds. However, charging parties, the people that actually complain to the EEOC, should be consulted before acceptance by the commission of relief offers. We don't actually have that bit of the narrative. Was that human resources employee in 2018, February, told about all this and consulted with about this? That 
is easier to understand than telling all employees at Activision Blizzard. So you again have this set of circumstances. You don't have to love how the EEOC operates where there's a lot of discretion given to the folks that are making the charging decisions, the settlements, the consent decrees, everything else. And all of these standards reflect that kind of discretion. You should do this, but there are exceptions. You can do this. You could have a fairness hearing, et cetera, et cetera. The union here complains about not being able to see the waivers, which we saw the state of California do. I tend to agree. The settlement amount of $18 million seems woefully inadequate. This would provide the maximum settlement for only 60 workers. Now, I think the issue with that math is the suggestion that the maximum, the $300,000 would apply to, to most folks. In general, it's hard to see certainly direct damages getting up to those numbers for most individuals affected. And even if you add a punitive component, I don't believe that the EEOC is back of the envelope calculating that there are going to be a lot of max level affected employees. That would be my guess as to what's happening there. But I have to agree with the union that this consent decree does have a middle section that says, well, there's going to be $18 million and the EEOC will figure it out. There's not quantifiable calculations. They're not how you're going to decide who gets 50, who gets 100, et cetera, et cetera. It's just you're going to turn in your claims form and the EEOC is going to parse this stuff out. So I agree with the overall concept that the EEOC didn't appear to put forth in the consent decree calculations that would be helpful here. I would suspect the EEOC will answer that they don't have to, uh, but it's certainly an interesting set of complaints. And like I said, I only wanted to cover a couple of these. I don't think it's worth our time to go over all 31. Unless you disagree, let me know. We might do a video where we just talk about 31 different complaints for the consent decree as presented by the CWA. But certainly the fact that they have now decided to try to intervene on their own behalf, claiming to represent people at Activision is an important part of this story. So as I said, California's escalating. Unions are joining the fight. Who knows what's going to happen next? If you like talking about these things, hopefully I can make the dry legal experience a little bit more entertaining, informative, and educational. Please do consider supporting the channel. We've got a Patreon for support. We've got other ways to support the channel listed in the description or just subscribing, giving up votes, down votes, sharing it around, putting it up on forums, telling people that we're here, putting it on Twitter, wherever you might find yourself. Every little bit helps. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.